morning. Hey, hi everybody. This is Joanne Manister, and I'm sitting here in Illinois, surrounded by an ocean of corn, as usual, <laughs> and in in the summer anyway. And I am joined uh, by my co-host Jeff, who is over in Maryland. And today we have as our guest Cynthia Barnett, a returning guest. We are so happy to have Cynthia back with us, and uh, she has written. A new book. Her last book was Rain, and that was great to read. So that's why we were so excited to have a new book by Cynthia. This one is called The Sound of the Sea, Seashells and the Fate of the Oceans. And it's a really well put together book about different shells and of course some history and anthropology, etc. Welcome, Cynthia. Thank you. It's nice to talk to you both again. Uh, let me go ahead and read a brief bio so people know who you are if they are not familiar already. So Cynthia is an award-winning environmental journalist who has reported on water and climate change around the world. Ms. Barnett is also the author of Rain, a Natural and Cultural History, long listed for the National Book Award and a finalist for the 2016 Penn E.O. Wilson Literary Science Writing Award. Congratulations. Well-deserved, actually. Um, I like this. The Globe describes Ms. Barnett's author persona as part journalist, part mom, part historian, and part optimist. Oh, yeah. We need the optimism, don't we? The Los Angeles Times write that she takes us back to the origins of our water in much the same way, with much the same vividness and compassion as Michael Pollan led us from our kitchens to potato fields and feedlots of modern agribusiness. That's nice. Ms. Barnett has written... All the places our great science journalists have written, National Geographic, New York Times, Los Angeles Times, et cetera, many other publications. You have a background in journalism, water his science, and history, and that's really cool. And it shows in your books. Um, and you teach environmental journalism at the University of Florida's College of Journalism and Communication in Gainesville, where you live with husband and teenagers. <laughs> so. Yes, and and one and one teenager has flown away since. Oh. I have a teenager oh. who just finished his freshman year in oh. college, and we have missed him. And we didn't get to drop him off at college That's because right. of COVID. And so he actually goes to Leiden in the Netherlands. And in a few weeks, cool. we will finally get to go and see him and I get to see his dorm. So oh, I'm very is, excited about that. So and if, exciting. Yeah, Although the it, Netherlands has had a spike in cases. It has, so it please has be careful. We will. And he's we, he's staying in his dorm right now. So he's, he's vaccinated and in a bit of hibernation again. Wow. <laughs> Congratulations. That's exciting. <laughs> so, well, um, actually I, I saw movement behind you. So you're sitting somewhere that's not just the typical and not you're not sitting in your house. Oh, I'm not sitting in I'm not even sitting in Florida. <laughs> <laughs> I I live in Gainesville and I am sitting in Nantucket and I actually I had the computer with a different view earlier so that so that we could all see the lovely little village of Nantucket on the outside, but it made my face go completely dark and you couldn't see me. So I had to turn, but at least you get to see um, the barometric pressure and the like. So, um, 
So I am in Nantucket because I've been invited to speak tonight by a wonderful group called Remain Nantucket. It is part of an effort funded by the philanthropist Wendy Schmidt to work on resilience in Nantucket, uh, defined by not just environmental resilience in the face of rising seas and storms, but also uh, social and economic resilience. So the neat thing about talking about mollusks to this community is that they're sort of the most resilient animals ever, right? They survived, they survived 500 million years of evolution. They lived through five mass extinctions. They are, you know, it's, it's all about sustainability and they're sort of the world's most sustainable architect. So um, the other neat thing about the talk tonight is that I'm speaking in a church and it is this beautiful first congregational church. And I love, I mean, that's been a surprising thing to me as a science author over these years, how often I've been invited to speak in churches and synagogues and other places of worship. And I think that's a beautiful thing and a really important thing um, just to be able to reach a broader audience. And that's something I very much tried to do with this book. But I'll tell you a quick story about that. I went yesterday afternoon to check out the venue. And it's this, you know, if you look up Nantucket Church in the dictionary, this church would be there. It's <laughs> imagine. And I walked in and I was talking to the minister about, you know, hey, do you have any seashell stories? And he said, well, there are those scallops on every cross we give every baptized person. And I said, what? what? <laughs> and he went and got these, these crosses and they are absolutely beautiful crosses with a bay scallop mounted oh. to each one. And it is the keepsake that they give every person who's been baptized in the church. And it was just such a beautiful reminder of the importance of seashells and specifically scallops, scallops. you know, throughout, throughout human history and very much in Christianity um, mm -hmm. from, from St. James forward, as you remember from that mm -hmm. chapter. So of course, I woke up early this morning and rewrote the top of the talk all about, <laughs> all about this beautiful, uh, little crosses it's really it was really a neat moment oh, that's really beautiful though <laughs> i'd love to see one yeah next, next time i stop by nantucket <laughs> the uh, the one thing that i remembered as we were looking at at this but i hadn't started the book yet but what i remembered from reading rain and talking about it was that of all the the beautifully written books we've read your writing is really like no one else's uh, and it's thank you thank I would, you Jeff. i would love to be able to to tell everyone who might be watching here's what you will get out of this book and the things that she talks about except there is so much history and so much narrative so much poetry so much beautiful work so many ideas it's awfully hard to figure out what's going on but we can say you know the the book says it's about seashells, and it certainly is. And then it also says seashells and the fate of the oceans, and you do that too, and it covers a lot of ground. And so there's just all these stimulations as I was reading that, especially 
because it relates to some other people that we've talked to recently. And there's a lot going on about oceans, yes. and its importance and climate change. But where I really want to ask first, because as I first started learning about evolution and things like that, and then history, one thing that has continued to surprise me is that European culture didn't recognize fossils the way we do until well into the 19th century. They thought they were natural formations, perhaps put there by God to uh, convince us to admire the world or something like that. Mm -hmm. And I would like to contrast that a little bit with two remarks. One is a remark, one is a quotation for your book, mm -hmm. and then ask the question that's been on my mind as Joanne knows for a while. Um, very early on, you talked about a shell museum someplace this may have been in Florida, but it doesn't really matter. And you said 90% of visitors to the Shell Museum had no idea that a shell is made by a living animal. Most people thought they were stones. That's, That's kind of shocking. And then 20 pages after that, you pointed out, this is not quoting, that Zuni people versus modern, modern people recognized the meaning of fossil shells, where they were, how they fit into a bigger history and a deeper time and their past. And so now I'm wondering about what that, what you would have to say then about that contrast between people's cultural notions and also my theme that Joanne knows, how those cultural notions and preconceptions influence the progress of scientific understanding in the world versus someone like the Zuni people who have seen things for a much longer time. Yeah, that's that's a really important question. And you know, Jeff, I noticed it with both rain and seashells. <laughs> the, you might remember in rain, the Americans were super excited about weather science very early on. The Europeans, mm -hmm. the Europeans were still hanging on to some of the witchcraft days and very worried about forecasting. Um, they, they were afraid of forecasting, didn't believe in the science of forecasting, mm -hmm. and actually halted for, forecasting for that years. That could be a dangerous thing which to was do. Surely dangerous. Yeah. In the, in the United States, it was the opposite. You know, Thomas Jefferson, the founding forecaster, he loved weather forecasting. You know, Americans got very into weather forecasting very early. And you make, a, you make an inch, and I actually hadn't thought about that contrast before you said it, Jeff, but it was true as well in, um, in, in the story of fossils, but earlier, like with the Zuni. And the interesting thing to me about the Zuni people was that, you know, you hear, you hear the Greeks, um, you hear that the ancients were so smart and they, you know, <laughs> recognized fossils and they were the first to do everything. Well, actually there's all kinds of evidence that Zuni mm -hmm. people understood that there were living marine animals that had lived in, in, you know, what is now a desert was once covered by the sea. They articulated all of that. And, um, and so that was clearly in their tradition. The other, the other thing you may have remembered from the book, which I found really fascinating, 
was the extent to which Charles Lyell, the so-called mm -hmm. father of mod modern geology, relied on enslaved people in the American South to tell him what was going on underneath right. because the uh -huh. plantation owners couldn't tell him about any of the fossils underneath the soil because they weren't the ones who dug the wells and so on. Yes. The enslaved people had done the work and recognized that these were animals and recognized that the sea had covered the land. So for one, I think one answer to your question as it pertains to the past is that Many people knew a lot of things even earlier than scientists. And sometimes we make assumptions that there was some lone genius who came and figured mm -hmm. it all out. So I like being able to debunk that assumption. But the, but the really disturbing thing you're noticing is in modern times now, there's been something of a flip where the where the Americans are a bit more skeptical about science, although there's plenty of scientific skepticism in the EU as well. Yes. So the story you're talking about, and it's what led me to write this book. I was at a wonderful seashell museum in Sanibel Island called the Na mm -hmm. Bailey Matthews National Shell Museum. And what you're referring to is a survey and this was 10, 10 years before I had been there, so it's not mm -hmm. terribly recent, but there had been a survey of visitors, which were um, lots of tourists to Florida visiting with their children, and they wanted to know how much do these people already know about seashells, and that was, that was where the statistic came from, that 90% of the visitors didn't know that a seashell was made by a living animal. Many, many people thought they were stones or rocks, and so that led to this book. I had been wanting to write a book about the ocean after the two freshwater books and then rain. This kind of completes the hydrologic cycle for me. And I wasn't sure how I was going to write about the ocean. And as soon as I heard that, you know, almost immediately, it, it, it really pinpoints the problem that you're asking about, which is what we're all we're all working on all the time, right? There's this incredible disconnect between, between science and too many people, but also between the natural world. And I mm -hmm. think the latter influences the former. You know, the, 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 the more disconnected children are from something like fossils, I mean, fossils and seashells and mollusks, as opposed to Pokemon, which Mollus actually inspired those yeah. wonderful Pokemon characters. Yes, exactly. There's this huge disconnect with the animals themselves. I think the, the, the wider that disconnect becomes, the harder it becomes to help people understand science and mm -hmm. um, you know, cut down on conspiracy theories and, and all of these other things. And I, I'll say one more thing about this, Jeff. I was very shocked by that statistic and I actually didn't believe it for a long time. But the more I went down there mm -hmm. and talked to people, the more I talked to people on the beach, the better I understood it. And then, and the book has only been out one week and I've, I've already heard from several teachers who say, it's even worse than you realize. There are many children, for example, in interior Florida who've never seen the sea. 
Not and even not, in Florida. In not even in Florida. I'd say, okay, middle of Illinois. Yeah, it, yeah, know. exactly, exactly. So yeah, you've I I don't have an answer to your observation, but I have mm. that I have that context that it's not just science communication that we have to work on. It's that physical, it's that physical connection, connection. to Earth and its life. The right. connection, and, the connection facilitates that understanding. Yes, right. Exactly. And, and actually, I mean, I'm sort of going to jump way ahead in the book. That's okay. It was interesting to me. You're talking about this. How do we reach people? They're not going to get to the beach, but how? And and we can backtrack after this. But it used to be you just bring shells, empty shells. But now there are people bringing the animals. So there is that connection that there's an animal in there, and to raise awareness about, you know, we just don't want to be collecting all these, destroying the animals, and yes. just disrupting the ecology and so yes. this is one of your clarion calls in this yes book. joanne that's a i'm glad you said that because i i keep forgetting to tell the end of that story which i do tell in the end of the <laughs> seashell book but the mm -hmm. end of the story is that last year unfortunately it was during the pandemic but the bailey matthews national seashell museum which used to be all about shells yeah. is now the first i think it's the first in the united states that's an aquarium devoted solely to marine mollusks. Mm -hmm. So you go there now and you see, you know, octopus swimming around and lightning whelk scooting around and, you know, cool. all kinds of fabulous marine mollusks, both from Florida and from outside Florida. You know, there, there are cuttlefish, there are all kinds of neat um, sea snails that you might see in California or the tropics or the coast of Florida. So that is really important and when you think mm -hmm. about when you think about museums you know the big museums they have tended to be had their stuff in drawers right. and and the shells themselves and then kind of out of sight anyway and you don't see the live animals it's kind of a diorama right so right. maybe that maybe that has been part of the problem and it's it's important to get uh it's important to get these animals mm -hmm. in his hands it seems like a new insight of and making connection yes. with oceans that yes. we, we talked a couple of weeks ago with helen scales about her yes. book the brilliant abyss and it's all about who knew that all that was wow. going on in the ocean and the answer is nobody really knew and mm -hmm. i remember from my youth a time when we thought the deep oceans were just empty and we could go and scrape nodules off the bottom without disturbing anyone there's there's yes. an amazing disconnect about what the ocean has done. Yes. And before and anyone thinks, I'm sorry, yeah. but before anyone gets the notion that you're using seashells as a pretext just to write about the ocean, it is about seashells too. I was amazed at how much interesting <laughs> stories and, and uh, uh, all the whole thing that was actually about seashells, but it is about seashells related to those animals living in the ocean and what the ocean has done for us and what we're doing to the ocean. And that's where we're, well, I'm back to my, it's like, I don't know what to do with your books. There's just all this stuff <laughs> and it all goes together brilliantly. So thank you. And when I say poetic, it's like, I got a lot out of that, but I'm not really sure what the narrative was. Yeah. 
sometimes things yeah. just come along. Yeah. But all those shells and all those animals and all that activity in the ocean. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you, I'll tell you how I thought about the organization, but I wanted to mention uh, Dr. Helen Scales. If you follow her yes. Instagram and her Twitter, she shares these extraordinary images of creatures that live deep mm -hmm. and she she also wrote a wonderful book of seashells there are other, yeah there are other wonderful seashell writers out here but i don't think the american story had been told and and mm -hmm. i mean not in a very long time it had about a hundred years ago and then in mid in mid uh maybe in 1950s but what I wanted to do and how I tried to organize it because Jeff, what happened when I sat down to write a book of seashells was that it was like trying to write a book about the world. Mm -hmm. It is our home, a shell is a, is a home and this book is about our home. And so mm -hmm. the way I thought about it is that, um, you know, if you hold up a shell, the pointy top, uh, a gastropod, the pointy top is the apex that's where the baby shell fit when it was just born and then it, it yeah. spirals its shell around itself. I thought of Florida and specifically Southwest Florida, which by the way, that's where I was born yeah. and that's where that sweet little seashell museum is. So I thought of Southwest Florida as the apex <laughs> of, my, of my own life and, and of this narrative. So it begins there in Sanibel Mm -hmm. But it winds around mm -hmm. the world. It goes to the Maldives and even to West Africa, and it and it gets to both the human story and mm -hmm. the scientific story. And the only way I could think to do this was to just pick <laughs> twelve really iconic shells of human history. So you know, people people had already written whole books about oysters and abalone. I have a friend named David Berger who wrote an entire book all about razor clams. Oh, wow. so thought, well, you know, the bivalves have had their own books and I write about some, <laughs> some bivalves, but I decided to take those really iconic sh shells, um, the ones that told the most powerful mm -hmm. story and mm -hmm. build the book around those 12 shells. And then of course there's a, I opened with the microfossils, so that added another chapter. Yeah. Oh, I love the, that story. I love that story, that story too. Alice, right, is the first. Uh, name. Carol, Carol Allison. Carol Allison. Yeah. So, so that was that was a beautiful story, and there is there is a lot of feminist science in this book, which was mm -hmm. part of me, you know, trying to give voice to people like. You know, even Miss Mary Elizabeth Lyle, you know, oh, who, yeah. was, who was a taxonomist in her own right. You don't see her name in Charles Lyle's books, but I can assure you she's there, right? So um, the story about Carol Allison, she essentially, I, I started writing this book and I said, wait a minute, what made the first shell? It wasn't marine mollusks 500 million years ago. It was something even before that. What was it? So I called this wonderful scientist, Phoebe Cohen at Williams College. And I said, I read this paper. You know, it looks like you found the earliest evidence of biomineralization. She said, well, that actually wasn't me. I was following in the footsteps of another woman, micropaleontologist, 
who had found these found this evidence before Phoebe Cohen was even born yeah. and died of cancer before she knew what she had found. So Phoebe Cohen goes back to this same remote part of the Yukon with her colleague and finds more of these yeah. um, mi microscopic beings who built the first shells. And one thing I loved about that story, you could, even she could tell, they start building these spikes and armor mm -hmm. for defense because even, even back then, she could see little drill holes where other animals had been trying to eat them. Other beings had been trying to eat them. So they start building shell and that's what it's all about. So yeah, I love that story too, but I kind of had to figure that out before I could start the shell story. Yeah. Unless we don't have enough story threads intersecting Sanibel Island and discovering that whole thing about the, what pre-Columbian shell cultures and things that have been destroyed by land developers who rewrite the history, which leads into other ideas about who gets to control the rewriting of history and the story of Lyle talking to the slaves because they're the ones who knew because the history of yes. how America settled had been rewritten and the disappearance of someone amazing like Julia Ellen Rogers, yeah. who's been specifically written out of scientific history, well, another very useful theme. And I, I think some, I'm sure some people might read parts of the book and complain that you're, you're just being all feminist and putting this stuff in. But I thought that was a, a I very valuable marvelous. thread. It was a great contribution, of, of reminding us about these people. Yeah, you know, it's funny. Someone commented that it was a feminist book, and I. My my feeling about this is that I just I just went back and told the history. And if you mm -hmm. actually do a good job and look under every rock and look inside yeah. all the seashells, you will find all the women. Okay. It's not that this is a feminist book. It's right. that the history hasn't been properly told. Right. And We're going to so, start talking about critical science theory or something. Yes. Now. <laughs> <laughs> Watch out, I do teach at a public university where we're not allowed to teach those things. So. That's right, that's right. They're going to request your beliefs in Florida. Right. Oh my goodness, that's like but, frightening but to, as anything. To quickly, to quickly respond about these great cities of Shell, that, that wasn't just in Southwest Florida, right? That was everywhere, mm -hmm. that was in, San Francisco Bay was surrounded by these incredible mounds that were flattened by 1906 when they were surveyed. Mm -hmm. The most amazing one to me is Cahokia, you know, near modern day St. Louis. Not and too yes. far. It's not too far from uh, two, two yeah. hours, two and a right, half hours. Right. And that there are, that there were mounds there as large as the pyramids of Egypt is just is just stunning and to you know and the other thing I love is the connection between the seashells of Florida, the lightning mm -hmm. welts of Florida and in Cahokia, but but further here in Nantucket to the um, the shell mounds, the 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 story is that there were permanent settlements and major communities all over mm -hmm. the country. 
And the story that's been written is that there were, you know, these were nomadic people and that's just, that's just not the case. True. Yeah. Uh, things that would be described in, uh, in uh, excitable uh, headlines as civilizations lost to history. Right. And I, I appreciate your, your pointing out that they're not so much lost to history as written out of history. Yes. To yeah. create a different history. Yes, I came to think of seashells as the world's great fact checkers. Yeah. Right? <laughs> they, they are archivists and they hold these stories more accurately than mm -hmm. the vanquishers who wrote down the stories, for sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Right. You know, you're talking about going all all around the world, the, the yep. book does go all around the world. And you mentioned many, many times a place I lived for six years, which is Guam. So my dad was in the Air Force. I lived on Guam for six years, middle school and high school. It's not like I lived in a house that I step outside and I'm on the beach, but yeah, it was pretty much there. The island is so small. And of course I was introduced to so many shells. We had a beautiful conch shell we, oh, money cowries were just everywhere. Everywhere. So right. They made little figurines out of these. And yeah, so we, mm -hmm. we had a nice collection of shells. I don't know where they are. You know, military <laughs> life sort of forces you to move and yeah. these things get broken and lost, but it, it was interesting. So you did you go to Palau or did you just, you went to Palau, so you were so close. So. Yeah, it's I funny was how so close. I actually, I actually had to stop in Guam. You did. I think you have to stop in Guam sometimes. On the flight I was on, we had to mm -hmm. stop in Guam, and I wish I had gone to Guam. My my greatest regret regret is that I didn't go to Japan because that story is really, really important. Um, Hirohito was a was a great marine scientist and a shell lover. Mm -hmm. And the World War II story to this book is really important in a lot of ways. One of them is that it was all those American servicemen stationed in the Pacific Islands who came back, back. with beautiful tropical yeah. shells as keepsakes that is the thing that caused the American shell madness of the 1950s. Right. And there was a crazy shell madness. If you read the Junonia chapter, there is just, mm -hmm. you know, it was just wild. People were, you know, opening shell clubs all over the country, including in the Midwest. And just, you know, everyone was crazy about shells and, and uh, putting them in the mail to each other. There were all these mail order catalogs, but that, but that, you know, you can imagine those young men going to these tropical islands and finding these shells and just wow, yeah. and bringing them home. And then, you know, and then, then there's also a, a prosperous time in the United States that follows that period yeah. that, mm -hmm. that yeah. enables people to travel. So I, I write about Anne Morrow Lindbergh there too. And what's, mm -hmm. important, what's important about her to me and I didn't realize this until I reread the gift from the sea. She in the 1950s is talking about the culture of accumulation and she's warning us about it. And it, when I read that book when I was young, that went right over my head. I was reading it for the feminist themes that are in themselves very gentle, you know, compared with our Me Too era of feminism. But 
her, when you read her on the amassing culture, you know, she's talking about seashells, but she's really talking about something else. She's saying, she's saying, you know, it's okay to collect one seashell. One moon snail is, or there's only one moon in the sky. I think she says, one, she loves the look of one moon, moon snail instead of three. She loves mm -hmm. the look of one shell on a windowsill rather than a windowsill jammed with shells. Yeah. And, and she's really saying something else about the culture we were becoming, right? And that's, that mm -hmm. was really interesting to me. And I think, it's, I think it's nice to think about that. She was saying, in framed space, beauty blooms. And I think that's a way to think about where we are as a culture and the transitions that we need to make to alternative fuels and the other, the other places we need to get to. It is not a hardship. It's a better way of living. It's more beautiful. And so I tried to get that across in, in her part. I hope it comes across. It yes. does. It was very nice. It's a sort of anti-bouillabaisse uh, philosophy. Oh, you, <laughs> you caught the bouillabaisse, Jeff. Yeah, sure, sure, there. sure, sure. And I, that's very modern sounding, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, the bouillabaisse metaphor, I could, I could probably talk for a whole <laughs> hour on bouillabaisse. And I don't... I don't think I should give away this whole story. Sure. But I went back. I went back and read Yul Gibbons, mm -hmm. and some of your viewers may be too young to know Yul Gibbons, but he was but he was Wild Foods before Wild Foods were popular, yes. right? And he's sort of known oh, yeah. for this for this sparseness, right? And living off the land, and you know, eating wild leek soup and all these things. But when you read him on seafood you realize that this is just, you know, we've, we've got to change our ethos. He would talk about, he would be, you know, raving about um, spearing octopus in their holes along the beach in California to eat octopus. And he talked about bouillabaisse, which is, which is still a popular thing, I think, but a bouillabaisse mm -hmm. is a dish that takes one crustacean, a crustacean, a fish and shellfish together but Yul Gibbons said it was no good unless you use three shellfish, three crustaceans, and three different kinds of fish. More, and it's more, just, more, more. It's just more and more and more and more. And that was all, but that was our culture. And, and I think we're in this transition and this mm -hmm. is a good thing. It's not, mm -hmm. you know, it's the future that we have to look at with a little less, with eating, you know, maybe a farmed clam, which I, I still really like to eat. I actually quit eating some of the seafood I eat after after this book, but you know, a farmed, maybe eating a farmed clam instead of a bouillabaisse is a better dinner. Maybe it's, maybe it's yummier. <laughs> well, our, our idea of what it means to live off the land has changed so much since the 60s, maybe more into yes. uh, what living with the land or course uh, it yeah it does feel transitional i hope it i hope it is yes and i think i think here on nantucket it's a very important part of the story because the scallops the scallops have really been devastated here the wild scallops and mm -hmm. it's not it's not one thing right it's not just over harvesting no. not just 
pollution. Well, I, I is, live very near the Chesapeake Bay, so that's yeah. an ever-present. Yeah, so, so it's very, very much warming as well. Warming is very relevant to these animals. So it's not just going to be one solution either. It's not just going to be, oh, let's all eat aquacultured clams mm -hmm. and scallops, which I, which I believe will do, and I believe is an important part of this solution, but it's also, let's make these transitions that we need to make away from fossil fuels and toward alternative energy and these, these other things we're getting to finally. Um, it's, a, it's a really combination of things, just yeah. as it was a combination of actions that harmed the seas and, and the life in the sea. Mm -hmm. Right, and we're like depleting past shells and current shells. And, yes. and as a biologist, I did appreciate where you were talking about, okay, why can't we get more conchs to mate? And what's going on here? In fact, it was repeated over and over with many yeah. species of mollusks. Why can't we get mm -hmm. them to mate? And there was a mixture of warming waters they're too dispersed. Yes. Now, you know, if you've taken away a bunch, then yeah. there's one here and one here, one here. Yeah. It's not close enough. Yes. Uh, the chemicals, the chemicals had a huge impact on some of the animals, including, including murex. I will say that I was in Puerto Rico last week with one of the researchers in the conch chapter, Megan Davis. So I, there was one trip I didn't get to take um, because COVID was just starting as I was finishing and I didn't get to go to Puerto Rico to, to see her conch farming yeah. operation. And, and conch farming is pretty promising. Um, the great thing about it is that they have the fishers themselves. So the, the conch fishers, and this is a long time fishing um, economy in Puerto Rico the conch fishers themselves go out and gather the eggs. So they will pick up a beautiful queen conch, take half the eggs and then put her back on the rest of her eggs, bring the, bring the eggs back to this area called the Naguabo conch hatchery. And there um, they, can, they can grow up much more of those eggs into larvae and then into queen conchs than they would have a chance of living in the wild. And then they will all be placed back into the sea. And because conchs are deep water animals, can be deep water animals, it's a little more promising, even if it, it gets any warmer than it already is there. So there's a bit more hope to that story than there is to some of the other uh, shellfish stories. And, you know, I, I really, I'm writing a story about that now. I'm kind of completing that story. So I'm excited about that. But you, you may have seen just last week with this incredible heat dome in the Pacific Northwest, oh, yeah. you know, a couple hundred people lost their lives and millions, millions. of shellfish, yeah. you know, that were living on the rocks in British Columbia. You just see those incredible photographs of dead muscles and see the impact that heat yes. is having on us and on marine life and and also on our food right yeah that that was pretty startling yeah um, and i think i for some reason you're talking about issues in the ocean of course plastic had to come up oh yeah and, and i was actually surprised to start hearing oh some plastic is being now interwoven within the shells and we'll be able to some researcher in the future will look, oh yeah, this was that part of, of 
time when they just over. Yeah. What, what amazed me, Joanne, is that there is no part of the world where a malacologist has opened up a bivalve and not found plastic. Right. Mm -hmm. No part of the world, and that includes polar regions where there are no people whatsoever, but, right. the, but the fibers from our yoga pants are in those mollusks. And I just want to say one more thing about Nantucket while I'm here, while I'm yeah, yeah. about it. Nantucket has banned single-use plastic. You cannot right. buy it on this island. And that was, you know, that was amazing. And that, that it took a while, but it went into effect. I think it's been in effect at least a year now. And, you know, everyone is getting by just fine without yes. single use plastics here. You can't say that anyone in Nantucket is suffering. <laughs> <laughs> oh. Because so. they don't have plastics, right? So, right. yeah. So they're, these, are, they're, these are things that can change. They're hanging in there. And and actually uh, jumping back just a little to the moor and the everything, I went looking up pictures of some of the shells that, you know, I've <laughs> seen many of them by living on Guam. It all starts off with where you can buy shells, buy these shells, buy, buy, oh, buy. Wow. I was like, really? You know? Yeah. So big shell market. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Someone asked me, is there a big shell, like a big oil? <laughs> and I, you know, I wouldn't describe it as a big shell. The, and the other thing people have asked me, which I have to admit, I'm surprised by this question, and it tends to come from younger people, like my students' age, is it even okay to pick up a shell anymore, mm -hmm. given, yeah. what, given what we know about the world and given that we know hermit crabs use them and that hermit crabs are mistaking plastic for seashells all over the world and dying inside plastic is it even okay to pick up a shell and i i would say that it is okay to pick up a shell and that it's maybe even important to pick up a shell especially if you're with a child and that's you know you're you're that child is getting some connection to nature and maybe we'll take it home to the Midwest or wherever they live, but maybe it's it's okay not to pick up every shell on the beach. Maybe you pick up one shell, mm -hmm. like Ben Morrow Lindbergh said. But the way that ties into the sale of shells and whether there's a big shell is, you know, it's better to pick up a native shell on your beach, an empty shell, mm -hmm. than it is to go into the beach shop at your beach and buy mm -hmm. a tropical shell. Because yes. that shell was very likely came somewhere from the Pacific Triangle where the tropical shells are imperiled by overcollecting. Mm -hmm. And then it was shipped over here. Um, the people who gather shells and in, in the industry are also taken advantage of, and they need they need solutions, just like those conch farmers in Puerto Rico mm -hmm. are being paid pretty well to collect conch eggs. There are sustainable solutions for fishers in Ind Indonesia and elsewhere that are the that are the answers rather than, you know, being exploited to over collect tropical shells. So mm -hmm. so everything mm -hmm. everything is connected. That's that's what 
I hope you took away yeah. from this book. I mean, I I actually set out to listen to shells to see what they had to tell me about the earth and the ocean and its marine life, but they actually had more to say about people and how we live and how we treat each other. So, you know, sometimes as environmental writers and science writers, I think we're maybe too micro focused on that animal doing amazing things instead of mm. its connections to human history and our obligations and justice and things like that. So that's why the book spiraled around the world, yes. <laughs> even to the Maldives and came back around. Speaking of, of Big Shell though, and I don't think we should tell the story here at all. It's, it's, it's fine, it's in the book, here you go. But perhaps you can reveal the original name of uh, Shell Oil. Well, I can tell you what the company was originally. It was um, it was Samuel Marcus's Seashell Curio Company in the East End of London. Samuel Marcus was a was a Jewish shopkeeper in London who opened his shop in the 1830s. In the East End, because you couldn't get better space he, if you were Jewish. That's right. That's uh, right. And he had a wonderful seashell shop. The shells that had been, I, I, I may have mentioned the earlier seashell craze among royalty um, for sure. aristocrats. But then by the, by the 19th century, that craze spreads to the Victorians. Mm-hmm the Victorian middle class, and they all want to buy seashells. Marcus Samuel has the brilliant idea to import seashells to feed into that craze. And he imports beautiful seashells from Japan. And in the next generation, his son, Marcus Samuel Jr., founds the Shell Oil and Transport Company. And that is, as Jeff says, a pretty epic tale <laughs> that I tell in a chapter called the Murex. And the, yes. first, yeah. the first shell oil tanker through the Suez Canal was called the Murex. And it is so nice to know that it does not take 10,000 dead Murex clams to make uh, a, micro, a microgram of purple dye. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's yeah. I was uh, surprised in that chapter, like how you know she's following as a woman, right? Following yes. the instructions, like yeah, and instructions on how to collect oh, dye from these shells. Oh, she's following Pliny's. She's following Pliny's. Pliny, that's yes. what I thought. Right. And and she's like, wait a minute, he never really made this dye. <laughs> <laughs> nice of him to document something yeah, he didn't exactly. do. Exactly. <laughs> um, enslaved people were actually making that dye, so he mm -hmm. I think he glossed over it a bit. <laughs> yeah. And yeah, um, there's more critical shell theory. <laughs> right. Right. So he, um, you know, you're talking about the collecting dye, but the end of the book reveals some really cool possible science of Absolutely. the iridescence of these giant clams and how those could be <laughs> helpful for yeah, solar so, power. So, um, so toward the end, you, you had asked me if I traveled to Palau and I did. I traveled to Palau with um, Alison Sweeney, who's a biophysicist now with Yale. And she is actually studying 
the uh, properties of, of giant clam illumination to understand it as a possible uh, inspiration for alternative biofuels and, and uh, solar energy. So clams are basically a big biofuel plant sitting on mm -hmm. the shallows of the Pacific taking in you know, billions of, of uh, microalgae and, and fueling themselves with that food with the help of some sunlight. And so, you know, these animals are inspiring a lot of really fascinating science. So I, I write about that science and of course, um, Megan Davis and the, and the aquaculture part mm -hmm. is another very important part of the solutions. Mm -hmm. And then another Another scientist I write about toward the end of the book is Mandy Holford, who is working on um, venomous, venomous mm -hmm. mollusks as potential human cures. You know, they are they are um, working on on molluscan toxins for everything from um, painkillers to cancer cures. She's actually identified a toxin from terebrid snails that can kill liver cancer in mice. And so she has a long way to go for human trials, but it's really amazing. So I wanted to show by the end of the book, the extraordinary human ingenuity that is out there and underway and this, you know, this shift that is happening. Um, but, but it's got to, we've got to protect the seas and, you know, stop climate change and stop contributing to climate change to to get to these mm -hmm. new ways of living and these well, wonderful and innovations. In, in passing, you noted that something like someone had told you that they estimated that uh, in medicines and things that some 80% of antibiotics and other very useful drugs had biological origins. And yes. Uh, and with mo and mollusks are a relatively recent part of that. I think part just mm -hmm. in the last forty years ago or so, most of these most of these cures have come from plants and and trees and the like. So the the marine creatures, you know, everything from from jellyfish to right. um, mollusks are are really important. It's. I my, a confession about that is that for a long time I thought it seemed kind of a a thin justification on the part of uh, conservationists, let's say, uh, to say, well, we might we might find drugs in these plants and these animals and these mollusks and things, so we'd better be careful. It's like, well, yes, we might. But, and so as a specific thing, it seemed a bit thin, but I'm starting to see it in the same way seashells as metaphors for everything, that it's really um, a type of discussion that, that the things that we get versus via these drugs which is a very specific concrete thing that we can understand or relate to yeah is is a, is symbolic of a bigger we don't even know what the resources contain it's, and offer and we don't such, appreciate them yes it's such a great point jeff and i i have often felt the same way you did sometimes mm -hmm. when an environmentalist or a marine scientist will say, well, here's why we have to save the oceans. We might be, you know, there might be a cure for cancer there. It, yeah. it felt, um, it, mercenary is the wrong word, but I'll use that word. That word is too strong, but that's how it felt. 
but you're right it's 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 the symbol of the whole and it's the important part is listening to nature we have been so arrogant right mm -hmm. we've been that arrogance comes through in this book in so many mm -hmm. ways and it was also true it was also true of those medicines right the chemical companies would find something and then they would send it to the lab and try to make a synthetic version. They would spend a couple of years trying to make a synthetic version when the you know evolution had done it better. And that is what Alison Sweeney is saying about the giant clams. Let's listen to what nature has been telling us for you know a billion years because we can we can live better with the help of of the animal yeah. world and so that's what it's about more than any one cure for any more any one thing plenty of, of right. symbols like the the just the picture of land developers plowing down ancient or historic unique resources of these shell buildings in order to crush the shells to make concrete to pave roads right. is a really a powerful symbol i think that's going to be with me for a long time and it's so I, I was so irritated by it it's so irritating you know the one that got me jeff was that alligator effigy in louisiana wouldn't you mm. have loved to have seen that there was a huge yes. alligator effigy that was that was taken down to build roads just yeah. incredible yes. well it was just some statue by some old people who weren't even very sophisticated right right yeah right yeah. well and speaking of destroying things or taking advantage of people, um, maybe you can talk a little bit about the Nagoya Protocol. Some people may or may not know about this. I'm a biologist, so I do. Yeah. Uh, the importance so, of these yeah. discoveries. So um, the Nagoya Protocol was part of the Convention on Biodiversity to try and protect so you you heard we talked a little bit earlier about some of these places where the shells get taken away, right? The shells are getting taken out. Those animals are being killed, but also um, animals, marine animals from the Coral Triangle and many other parts of the world, you know, such as the Brazilian forests, these things were being taken by major chemical manufacturers or by Western scientists to, mm -hmm. um, you know, to come up with cures and do their work without regard for the people in those places. And there are some really painful stories when you look back at history about colonial science and what mm -hmm. happened. So, you know, really important objects like uh, you might you might remember that shells, things like wampum here in our country, but shells in other parts of the world, they, they weren't exchanged as money so much as truths and cultural artifacts. So many of these things were just taken uh, by archaeologists, earlier archaeologists. It was the same in the ocean. You know, people were just taking creatures, bringing them back to the United States or to... Um, to the EU and discovering things and nothing would go back to right. the countries. There's a very dramatic quote in the book. I don't have it in front of me, but someone said, you know, the, the tropics were our supermarket. We could just take anything we wanted. And so the Nagoya protocol was meant to prevent 
um, that from happening anymore. So it protects these some of the smaller countries or more developing countries um, to be able to strictly control who can take their um, marine life and other resources. Well, the problem with it is that it's sort of backfired so that now scientists who are doing some of this work, who are working with native people and wanting to share this you know, with all humanity are in some cases being kept from doing the research they need to do. So it's, 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 still, um, it's still a very controversial topic and it is not worked out. But I had one scientist tell me that it's the number one, it's the number one barrier to his uh, marine science in the Pacific Triangle right now. So it's a very, you know, very current and timely issue. Mm -hmm. And it's got to, you know, it's got to be negotiated with people who live in these places and not just you know, not just by the uh, bureaucrats and, and scientists and people who are paid to fly somewhere and be in a room. Right. Yes, it's so true. Um, you know what? I'm, I'm looking at your book. I actually, I have an ARC, um, so I don't have the full one. But I can we give a shout out to your artist? Absolutely. <laughs> I am yeah. so... I am so glad you did that, Joanne. That's been something I've been doing on my Zoom book talks, uh, has been showing her artwork. The good. artist's name is Marla Coppolino. She lives in Ithaca, New York. In her day job, she works for the Cornell Ornithology Lab. Oh, but I love that. Their app is, is great. She <laughs> is a trained malacologist. Uh -huh. And she no, is a fantastic scientific illustrator. So, you know, my, my idea here was that I wanted to help people get beyond the seashells. Now let's get beyond the seashells and think about the life inside. Yeah. So looking, and looking for an, uh, an illustrator, I kept asking malacologists who would be really good at this. Good. And her name, her name came up. I want to show you my favorite. This is what the book author copy looks like with all the post-it notes in it. Right. <laughs> um, my favorite, my favorite is the base scallop. Oh, yeah. look how beautiful. I just yes. love it so much. And she really got the eyes. And yes. she really, I, I go um, swimming with these guys in the Gulf of Mexico. So I can tell you that she really got the motion, which is so hard to do, right? Um, ah, I'm not 100% sure the ARC has every uh, illustration. I think it does, but does we, it? Were, okay. we were still tweaking them. Okay. We were still tweaking them by the time, yeah, so... Um, I well, hope I'm really glad there's some in here. So. Oh, there! I, I appreciated the accuracy too, and the fact that it, yes. it was the shell that you were talking about to illustrate. I, so, some people don't think that's particularly important, and I think it's exceedingly important. So I appreciate that. I, I oh, loved great. that she captured the beauty of the shells and mm -hmm. the personality of these animals. Yeah, and they. they they swim and hop and skip and do somersaults. Mm -hmm. And sometimes you hold one up and it seems to look you right in the eyes with its with its crazy tentacle eyes. And she 
she captured all that and I was just thrilled. Uh -huh. yeah. yeah, I was looking at the conch and you just see her eye coming out like, hey The conch <laughs> eyes are so great. And she also yes. accurately shows that there's um, there's vegetation growing on the backs of conchs. Mm -hmm. When you see mm -hmm. a queen conch in the Bahamas, it is not a shiny pink thing, right? right? It is really covered with green algae and all kinds of vegetation and she really captured that so it's great i'm so glad uh that those pictures were included in there they're, yes. they're very charming and love well done, yes so. yeah. i will tell marla you said so and she'll be mm -hmm. really excited oh. she, when i had the book launch um last week the day the book came out she came on the first book talk with me and i introduced great. her and we we showed you know her her illustrations next to the live animals, so you could really oh, get wow. feel for it. Wow, and that great. was a lot of fun. Yeah, Marla Copolino, everyone. Yeah, Jeff. When oh, maybe her thing just ended so high. We don't know if uh, Cynthia will join us again. Let's see if she comes right back. So yeah, I I it's hard for me to say which Cynthia's back. She's I don't know when guess I got so excited about Marla Cotolino <laughs> that I just exploded. But yes. <laughs> yeah, I was like, surely this is an accident and not a one hour moment kick out. <laughs> I'm like, do we ever do that? So you, before we quit, usually we don't do this and I, it's time to stop and everything. But there was one quotation that was one of the themes we talked about earlier. And I think just because it was the longest quotation I wrote down because it just, I don't know. It irritated and energized me so much. And I would like to read that and then then I absolutely will will stop. And oh, I can't it. wait to hear what it is, Jeff. Uh, and just after this, you had, in a short one, you were quoting G. Stanley Hall, whom you said, and this is quoting you, he and others insisted that boys needed books written by men. Okay, that was the, came after this discussion of Julia Ellen Ro Rogers right. and such. Mm -hmm. And here I'm quoting a paragraph that you wrote and to me, it was like all those people who keep saying, well, why weren't there more women in science and the arts and things? They probably just weren't as good at it or something. It's like, okay, quoting, I puzzled over how Julia Ellen Rogers could have vanished outside the shell world, especially having been in Liberty Hyde Bailey and Anna Comstock's influential sphere of study, of nature study at Cornell. Her name never appears in Comstock's autobiography published by Cornell University Press in 1953 in the wearying pandemic summer of 2020 amid headlines filled with public distrust of science, the answers finally reveal itself. A Cornell researcher and nature study historian named Karen Pinders St. Clair uncovered an egregious tale of how a chain of editors and colleagues suppressed and rewrote Comstock's story and that of the early nature study movement, end quote, because they thought boys needed stories written by boys. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And that's all in there, but I want to entice people too and say that there are so many stimulating topics in this book that. Thank you. I, and that's when, when the story of, of nature study in the progressive era somebody has got to write a fabulous book about that. Mm -hmm. When, in fact, when Last Child in the Woods came out, 
because all that earlier history had literally been written out of history mm -hmm. by the person who whitewashed um, Comstock's biography, none of that was out there um, in the public record. And that story isn't in Last Child in the Woods. And I think it would be a really neat yeah. story of itself. And in fact, some of the kids who learned nature study in school include Aldo Leopold and wow. Rachel Carson. And then nature study is abolished around World War One because yeah. of what you just said. People thought that it should, that children needed to just read science books written by men. They didn't need to be going out looking at snails and holding the over feminization and, of science and looking at bird eggs. That was all women's stuff, mm -hmm. right? Um, I, I, you know what you made me think, Jeff. Maybe you could invite Karen Pender St. Clair to be on cool um, your show. And she has updated Anna Comstock's biography. She okay. went back and restored it. So uh -huh. now Cornell University Press has published her actual biography, the longer okay. one that wasn't censored by the people who just wanted to write about her husband. And Karen, Karen would be a great person to have on the show to kind of bring that book back to life. Excellent. To be to be bulging with the yeah. stories to to come out, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, so, so, but there we are. Now we know more about it than we did before. That was the chapter that, after I read it, it just kept lingering in my head. I'm like, yeah. mm -hmm. really, really, it's this bad. I mean, we knew it's this bad, but it's this bad. <laughs> yeah, I I would like to write a bit more about Julia Ellen Rogers mm -hmm. and. You know, she probably deserves her own biography, and and she even her Wikipedia page is full of inaccuracies. And I, I meant to mm -hmm. go fix her Wikipedia page after I finished the book, <laughs> and now I haven't really had time. But you're both reminding me that I am going to do that soon. Oh, that would be great. <laughs> yeah, maybe we'll maybe we'll justice. commit to trying to uh, talk to uh, Karen. Okay, sounds yeah. great. Yeah, yeah, I'll, I'll look more into it. Oh, I'm so glad you brought that up because yes. this is important. So, yeah, well, Cynthia, we are past an hour, and I just wonder, is there anything you wanted to add that maybe we forgot to, to bring up? Oh, my gosh. I think, I, think <laughs> you, I think you brought up so much. But as a, as a closing thought, I would just say, you know, there there are dark moments in this book because of mm -hmm. the history that exists, mm -hmm. but the mollusks in the end, they're incredible survivors, right? They right. lived for these 500 million years. They survived the mass extinctions. They have a lot to tell us. They are inspirational for for how we can live differently, for how we'll protect ourselves from storms, even from from biofuels and the human side too. There are some dark moments in that human history, but ultimately, you know, we have just been incredible innovators. And that is what I hope people take from some of those stories. You know, even at the end, when I when I end on the west coast of Africa, I've learned about I've learned about the cowries and the slave trade, but I've also learned about the first tidal energy plant now mm -hmm. will now be built on the coast of West Africa. I mean, that that is very exciting. And so 
Um, I hope I hope that it is inspirational um, for the for the way we can live in the future. Yeah, it's it's great. What a great book! And by the way, I'm just going to show the front pages. Oh yeah, <laughs> the, the illustrations. The frontispiece is wonderful, isn't it? It's beautiful, yeah. beautiful, yeah. so relaxing is what <laughs> I think. Anyway, well, Cynthia, thank you so much for being here and talking about your great book. Again, for those who may have just popped in, it's The Sound of the Sea, Seashells and the Fate of the Oceans. And I think every time I've tweeted about this, I've forgotten an S or added an S or <laughs> I, is it plural, is it singular? <laughs> I noticed that there was a little Twitter dispute about World Oceans Day versus World Oceans Ocean Day. Day. Yeah. And I thought to myself, it probably doesn't behoove the environmental community to be fighting on Twitter about what their hashtag should be. Yeah, <laughs> well, yeah for grammar, it's it's yeah. grammar, right? It's right. Just, uh, it's understandable. So it's understandable yeah. because there's there's always some debate about whether we should use ocean mm -hmm. or oceans. Ocean. But I I ended up going with oceans plural. I think one sea, time I put sea, sound of the seas and yeah. I followed up with a tweet. No, the sound of the sea. <laughs> And I'm it's like, a historic I'm... poetic plural. <laughs> it's understood. Yeah. That's right. Oh, thank you so thank much. I you, hope you Julian have a great time on Nantucket. Oh, thanks. I will. Thank you so much. Great to see you. Yeah. Happy summer to you too. Bye-bye. Thank, thank you everybody for joining in.